Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Orlando Wood, Chief Innovation Officer at System One and the author of Lemon, a new book discussing why the advertising brain has stopped working properly. Glad to have you on the show, Orlando. Fabulous to be here, Phil. Thanks for inviting me. You know, this book, Lemon, really touched on so many different topics that I think are so germane to the advertising business at this particular juncture in time. So I want to start off at least initially asking, what was the incentive to engage in this project and start to write the book? Well, a lot of things, actually. I'd been doing quite a lot of work over the last few years looking at characters in advertising and just how how important they are really for, for effective campaigns. But I'd noticed that they'd started disappearing and that actually I'd traced this decline happening principally over the last 15 years, but you could sort of stretch it back a little bit further than that. And not just characters in advertising, but also this idea of having a kind of a human kind of context, a drama playing out in slightly different and new ways, like, you know, Snickers, you're not you when you're hungry, that kind of campaign idea, that and characters had started to you know, I'd, I'd seen, I'd plotted this using data from the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising who published the book. And I couldn't really explain why, you know, why is it disappearing? And at the same time, you know, I kind of noticed in culture and in society that things were just getting a bit brittle. You know, there was a lot of anger about there's, you know, I mean, every country in the Western world, it seems, has got its own problems at the moment. And, you know, culture just seemed to be shifting and changing and not in a very good way. And so I happen to be thinking all these things and trying to work out, you know, have there been other times in history where this is this has sort of happened? And I came across the work of Ian McGilchrist and his amazing book, The Master and His Emissary in which she talks about, you know, how the brain works, how it attends to the world, and in particular, the two different hemispheres and how they have different priorities. And he also talks about how this is, you know, you can trace in culture over, you know, hundreds, thousands of years, shifts towards a certain style of of thinking, a certain style of attending to the world in culture. And I thought, God, this is happening today. This is this, you know, we're going through a new reformation. And in hundreds of years time, people will look back on this period of, you know, stripping back of characters and searching for authenticity and a kind of new appropriateness, which, you know, will seem bizarre in years to come, much as, you know, I thought that we'd never see the likes of the Reformation again. You know, we're kind of seeing it today and we're seeing it play out in advertising. And I think what was really interesting is that you talked a lot about that, tracing sort of artistic movements, the Reformation in particular, and the shifts that happen. And you could see it in the artwork and reflected in the style of the architecture at the time, the design at the time. And a lot of that was spent in part two of the book. Yes, that's right. I want to go because I I took a lot of notes and by part, by section. So before we get into that sort of the manifestation of these shifts, I want to go back to part one, which kind of diagnoses the problem. And there's this theme that comes up often, this idea of effectiveness, advertising effectiveness versus efficiency. 
And it seems like what we're seeing played out is a battle between these two ideas. I would say effective is potentially more long-term yeah. and efficient is short-term, maybe feels very good, but leaves these gaps. Like expand a little bit on that idea and why you started with this idea of thinking about effectiveness versus efficiency. Sure, of course. Well, the, the, a lot of work has been done by, you know, the godfathers of effect, uh, advertising effectiveness, Peter Field and Les Binet, who show how advertising works in two different ways. You know, it, it can either work in the very short term to, you know, perhaps attract attention, the, te- the attention of people who are perhaps in the market for a new sofa or mattress or whatever it is right now. But actually, the way that advertising works properly, really, at its best, is over a long-term period of the cumulative gains that you get in brand salience, in in mental availability, that are achieved actually better by less message-driven and more emotional-based advertising. Advertising that generates an emotional response in people, that gets it noticed, gets it remembered. In fact, you know, some of the best campaigns last for 20, 30, 40, 50 years in people's memories. You could probably remember some you know, great ads from your, you know, your youth, uh, just as I can. These emotional campaigns, and actually campaigns often that have characters and, you know, these kind of lovely devices, these scenarios, these are the things that really last in people's memories and get remembered, get talked about as well, I should say. So these, what I show in the chapter one, you know, of the book is that, is I, I prove that, you know, I kind of show that when you look at any given category, and you measure emotional response to all the ads in that category, and you factor that in alongside share of voice for each brand relative to its size, so its spend basically relative to its size, you can kind of predict how much a brand is going to grow in the following period over a longer time frame. And we've got caught up as an industry in you know, very short-term measures and feedback loops, metrics that prioritize the kind of here and now, and that don't look further forward. And so we're in this kind of downward spiral, a hall of mirrors, if you like, a ratio, you know, efficiency is a kind of ratio that, you know, the most efficient business is, as Les Binet says, is one that doesn't exist at all. You know, so efficiency yeah. is not the way to go. An ROI, of course, that the, the, the preoccupation in the last 15, 20 years with return on investment is a ratio, is an efficiency measure. And what you need to be doing is looking at growth over a longer time period. And it's interesting you mentioned ROI because in in my notes, and I've used this term a lot, that if you're talking about ROI, you're not talking about culture. And my background is in finance. I I was a Wall Street Mm. guy throughout my entire career, my academic and formal career, and left that world behind for any number of reasons. But it's interesting that in my evolution, going from a Wall Street trader where ROI is all you talk about to leaving that space and coming into a space where it's now just as predominant. So I'm curious about this idea of why you think that shift has occurred where marketing and advertising now chases this idea of ROI much to the detriment of everything else, particularly culture. So why does it, why, why are people doing this? Well, because, well, of course, quarterly reporting, so shorter time frames in which you have to sort of demonstrate a, some sort of response, that's not particularly helpful. Increasingly shorter tenures of uh, CMOs trying to make their mark and, and you know, dispense with what's gone before and create something new. 
I mean, there are lots of, I mean, it's difficult to give kind of a cause and effect, but lots of different factors that have caused this. And perhaps if we talk about chapter four in a, in a minute, you know, I kind of unpack some of these, the, the reasons why we're seeing this this shift in, in advertising. But, you know, there are lots of reasons. And of course, they're just the way that everyone attends to the world in this new technological age is very quick. You know, responses have to be, uh, it's felt that we have to give a response immediately, you know, and, and you leave it a day and it's too late. The ability to communicate quickly with people has sped things up and not always to, well, often not to our benefit. Can this idea of brand meaning, and when I say brand meaning, the idea of what a brand is, the psychological impact that it has on our lives, is it possible to use that to mitigate this battle between efficiency and effectiveness? Is Could that be a counterbalance to these kind of yin and yang? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends what you mean by brand meaning. I mean, I, I talk in the book about you know ways in which advertising can connect with people and you know that this i mean there are lots of ways in which you can do this and and actually brands can create a kind of cultural glue that glues people together you know you, you talk about an ad in the street in the wherever you are in the bar or at least people used to there is that sort of cultural glue is disappearing as things like characters have disappeared or uh, witty and funny scenarios that are played out you know through a campaign Th- those things are disappearing i think i talk about I mean, what could be more meaningful than a sense of betweenness between characters or, you know, demonstrating people talking to each other or connecting with each other in ways other than words or, you know, all of these things. This sort of this really is what life is about. And it's sort of humanity expressed at its best. Those things are disappearing from advertising, as I show in the book. You know, so if you, you we can talk about meaning in lots of ways. I mean, characters, interaction with people, all of those things. I think are, are rich and also humor, you know, metaphor, all of these things are ways of communicating things and meaning and they're disappearing. Is potentially activism a form of brand meaning? Because I, I think about, and of course I'm using an American context, brands like Patagonia, like Ben and Jerry's that don't speak through characterization in a traditional way of maybe an M&M's and, an, and even Geico with the gecko yes, and, yes. and all that kind of stuff. But they do resonate very deeply due to a particular stance that they take. They are politically and socially active, and that kind of speaks to their brand ethos. I often say, for example, Patagonia, I'm a, I'm a kid from Brooklyn. I don't hike, but I, I feel an affinity toward the brand because of their progressive way in which they market themselves. So do you think that sort of activism could potentially be a part of this conversation? Yeah, I think it can if it's done well in a way that, you know, makes people feel something. Um, that the danger with that kind of approach, and I talk a bit about this in the book, is that sometimes it comes across as, as if as a bit didactic. You know, I'm being told what to do and what to think. And if you don't agree with it, then, you know, it, <laughs> it's not going to work. So, you know, it has to be done in a human way that most people are going to to kind of appreciate and enjoy because essentially entertainment is what if you can entertain then you'll 
get commercial gain. And that's one of the big themes in the book that we've forgotten how to entertain. And instead, you know, we're kind of telling people we've become very self-conscious as brands. You know, we kind of, I suppose, a bit posturing sometimes, you know, we're kind of not self-aware. We've lost self-awareness. We've lost playfulness. And that's all part of this cultural shift that we're, we're seeing. In fact, a lot of the artwork in the Reformation, perhaps we'll talk about in a minute, is very much like the purpose advertising of today, you know, with its reliance on words and telling people how they should think and behave and respond to things. And, you know, it doesn't work for everyone. And this sort of idea of having uh, purpose and goals and is a bit of a left brain way of thinking, you know, very narrow and goal orientated. And not everyone feels like that about ice cream or anything else, you know. And the danger is that if everyone is doing this, then all brands start to look the same you know, yet another ad about whatever it is, you know, it feels, it can feel like, you know, we're just being, we're being preached at and with the same message by just another brand. So I think you have to be a bit careful about it. And there are more playful and more effective ways of gaining market share. I think that's a perfect segue to talk about part two, which is this conversation around creativity and the brain and how left brain and right brain when we're isolating one versus another and how they work in concert to give us a more full view of the world. When I read that section, it made me think about the work of Leonard Schlein, who I Uh think I I sent, I mentioned that in one of our communications. And he talks about a flattening of creativity based on language. So as language becomes predominant at different times in history and he attaches it to this feminist ideal, you see times where art flourishes and then times where it sort of declines. And it's very much linked to how we feel about particular values that we have at the time. So this battle between left and right brain dominance, walk me through a little bit of how you're seeing that manifesting in advertising. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So perhaps I'll just explain a little bit about it. So Ian Ian McGilchrist wrote this fantastic book and he talks about the two hemispheres of the brain. And it's not so much that they do different things, he says, as people used to think mistakenly. It's that they do things differently. You know, they have different takes on the world, different priorities, different things attract their attention, and they bring our attention to bear on things differently. So the left brain, you know, in in birds, animals, mammals, and insects, and worms, you know, it turns out that it's very goal-orientated, very narrow in its focus, quite literal, quite explicit. It likes things to be very clear, can't, has no room for ambiguity at all. It likes the familiar, and it likes to repeat things. It has, it abstracts things from their context and breaks things down into smaller parts and likes to categorize things and people, actually, which is quite dangerous. And then, you know, it it also has, it likes to manipulate the world through tools, so through language, signs, symbols, and it can't really, has no appreciation of live time or depth. It can't really do music. It can only really do basic rhythm. Whereas the right brain is broad and vigilant in its focus, you know, and of of the five types of attention that psychologists broadly agree on, four of them are taken care of by the right brain. Only narrow, goal-orientated sort of attention, focused attention is taken care of by the left. And the right brain is so is broad and vigilant. It understands the world as a series of connections and relationships rather than kind of linear cause and effect. And it understands people, implicit glances, gestures, intonation, accents, tone of voice, all of those things in a way that the left brain only really does things. And the right brain, because it's got this lived sense of time, it understands music, depth, and so on. And it also has 
this kind of openness to novelty and to contradiction. It can cope with the idea that two competing thoughts could be true at the same time, which means it understands humor and metaphor. And these are important things for advertising. So, you know, you kind of literally, if you get the left brain and you can isolate, you know, one or other brains, you get the left brain to draw a flower, it will draw you this very flat sort of flower head, Mm -hmm. you know, abstracted, a symbol of what, you know, a flower might look like. Whereas the right brain in the same people, you know, you draw, it draws the whole flower with its stem and its leaves and, you know, in three dimensions. So really, we need both brains to work and great creative leaps come from both brains attending to the world. But the left brain has a slightly more suppressive effect on the right than the right on the left. Talk about reasons why in the book. And you see at certain times in history, a gradual kind of swing towards left brain ways of attending to the world. And you end up with this kind of flattening in culture, literal flattening, more abstraction. You end up with more words <laughs> appearing, you know, on, on art or, or in advertising, is it today? And it becomes, once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it. So, you know, when I point it out to people, they say, well, God, it's everywhere. You know, I, I can see it everywhere. And so what I did in the book was I traced this through history. I looked at it in the late Roman period. You get this move towards flatness and symmetry. And you see it in, you know, the Reformation, a wonderful period of the Renaissance where you start to see depth and empathy and betweenness, all of these things coming back, a sense of one's time and place in the world, referencing other things, referencing antiquity. And, you know, as a, so then that gives way to the Reformation, you know, and, and so on and so forth. It goes back and forth until, you know, you get to 20th century increasingly abstract and flattened artwork in you know, in Picasso and others. And, you know, I even say, you know, in, in high music, you know, kind of Schoenberg famously said, you know, how the music sounds is hardly the point. And this is, this is a period, you know, these are sort of where ideas about the thing become more important than the thing itself. And I think we've hit that point in advertising where we stop talking about the work, we stop kind of caring about the work. And what's become more important is the sort of pipe work that surrounds the work and that it's fed through. And it's interesting because I, I agree with a lot of this in theory, right? Not Gilchrist per se, but I'm trying to balance the way in which we talk about language and words and the predominance of those ideas in advertising. And I'm trying to square that with, for example, the huge amount of video communication that we have nowadays that is also driving this push for digital and Mm -hmm. and data, right? And then there's meme culture that exists within that as well that is both visual in its direction but with overlay of slogan and words and just yes. Yes. quick ra- hashtags and, and all the rest of it. So yeah. it feels like this flattening is taking on a different appearance in a digital space. Well, I, I mean, I look at the YouTube ads specifically, ads that mm-hmm. appear on YouTube in the book. And if anything, it's more extreme in those channels than it is on TV. What you find is that, as you rightly say, you know, and everyone will have noticed, words seem to be appearing on everything, partly perhaps because, you know, people are consuming advertising with their sound off, of course. But, you know, it's happening on television advertising, as I show. It's happening everywhere that these words, you know, we're kind of being shouted at, in, often in capital letters, um, <laughs> that the words get in the way. I mean, so it's as if the visuals, the imagery only exists to support the words that are on its surface. And we've become very, and it's all part of us, you know, 
business has become very analytical. It's become all about data. You know, we have a, a sea of data. That, you know, makes it become so risk averse because we we've, we've got so much data. We don't know what to do with it. Then you know, do anything intuitive anymore, and you end up in a situation where because we're paying t- so much attention to to kind of data and words, that that's the sort of stuff that we start to create. There's the same short termism we started off by talking about. You know, the left brain is very um, impetuous and, and goes for an easy solution, a familiar solution often. And this same rise in short termism we've seen since about 2006 in advertising is responsible for this same shift in aesthetics, basically, you know, because the left brain likes this flat, word-based, literal way of communicating. There's no room for nuance, ambiguity, humor, characters, playfulness. And it sounds like this, I mean, this behavior is being reinforced, right? This idea that we can measure everything, that it's coming down to algorithms. We're in this loop where it creates things over and over and over again, despite the fact that there, I think, is a rising tide of folks like yourself, I would include myself in that category as well, that is seeking human connection. And that's one of the things that resonates with me when I hear people talking about how do we find a way to connect more and have more nuance? How does one battle that when you're being evaluated, compensated, and perhaps making yourself hireable by reinforcing that loop. Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, you have to look for longer term ways of measuring effectiveness, which is one of the things I do in the book. I think you have to promote the kind of work and award the kind of work that will work over a longer time period. So I think judges in awards you know, kind of creative awards around the world need to think more about long-term devices, which have become very unfashionable and very unpopular. You know, this kind of, as Peter Field puts it, disposable creativity that's put to the services of perhaps a promotion, you know, uh, seems to be the thing that's awarded and very popular at the moment at Cannes and other places. So awards are part of it. And I think just celebrating and showing the kind of work that entertains people will in itself, hopefully, and you know, when people start to see the effects of it, because the effects are, you know, will be seen, then I hope people will kind of copy in the in a good way rather than uh, jump to the shortest measure. And, and, you know, that's the problem. We've got to kind of create a positive feedback loop rather than a negative short-term efficiency feedback loop. Do you think it's possible to ask people to move away from the measurement to be happy with ambiguity. I think about a, there's a scene in very early season of Mad Men, you know, the typical advertising TV show, right? And Don Draper kind of strong arms a client into going along with a particular proposal. And then at the end of the exchange, the guy, they're shaking hands and he's like, oh, I can't wait to see the results. And Don's kind of like, well, we'll do our best. You know, this isn't, it's not a science, right? So after he kind of bullies the guy into going mm. along with what he wanted. And I'm curious, this isn't a science, right? Like we don't, I don't know what having the two little M&Ms does to make me want M&Ms. Like yeah. I don't know how much it matters, but I know that I remember it. That's and, right. And you're right. Yeah. So I'm not sure how, how like how do you reconcile that, that well, sort of, of feeling? You're right. I mean, there's a. I mean, there's been so much emphasis on the sciences and behavioral science and data, you know, and I'm guilty of that, you know, for the last 10, 15 years in our industry and in the measurement industry that it's sort of 
we've got to a point where it feels a bit like in the you know the enlightenment that no question can go unanswered you know there must be an answer to every question that we can possibly pose and that's not of course true it's very difficult to come up with answers for many for many questions or even asking the right question but you know what i'd say is that you know, that there are certain principles, I think, that science can help with. And, you know, the ability to process, the ease with which we can process something, recognize it. We know that emotion is important now more than we ever have done really in the past. We know that these things are what makes things noticeable and memorable and that will lead to longer term effects. So we know the general principles. I talk in the book about, you know, how you might do this. But I also think that there is an art as well. We mustn't lose and a lot of the book is about art. Yeah. A lot of the book is about history and culture and the referencing of other things. And, you know, the creative's task is not a science, not purely a scientific one. Great creative leaps come from combining the sciences and the arts and the humanities. And we've become, as the front cover says, you know, we've become advertising has become a bit of a science and lost some of that humanity and lost some of that the thing that really makes it work. And that concludes part one of the deep dive conversation with Orlando Wood. Orlando and I discussed the first half of his new book, Lemon. We dived into why the current advertising industry model suffers from a lack of creativity. How does this affect the work being created and how has short-termism, measurement, and data all played a role? In part two, Orlando and I will discuss the last two sections of Lemon and also explore some alternatives to the current advertising industry challenges. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and at thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you and see you on the other side.